Yeah, so good. I like that guy's hair. I always wanted straight hair, like curly hair. Any of my curly hair friends in here? No? All right, that's what I'm talking about. The snow has wreaked havoc upon our curly mop heads. Who ordered the snow? Which one of you guys did it? Which one of you prayed for this? Oh, man. It's kind of a cool uh, hardcore shift in the weather. Was it like pretty hot in Ventura last week? It was blazing hot in Fresno where I'm from. Heat wave. Yeah. El Nino. Okay. Well, um, I'm pretty excited to be with you guys again tonight. I have uh, my family's up here, which is great. They came up today, drove through the fog, which was my wife said was scary, but little, my little one, Jubilee, is up here with us, and she's great. She ate like a whole plate of uh, scalloped potatoes and then said, all done. And you know, she didn't talk. And then she was like, night-night, <laughs> just went right to sleep. The travel really wore on her. And then my son, Rowan, like I told you guys, he's four, he's crazy. And uh, as soon as it started snowing, he was like, I need to be out in this. He was just drenched, shivering. And he goes, Dad, can I jump in the, in the river? I was like, no. <laughs> like, his kid's got a death wish, right? And, uh, but he, you know, he's embracing it. We're excited. I'm excited they're here. I feel supported. Um, and I'm excited to be with you guys. Um, so let me just remind you where we've been. So Monday night, last night, right? It's, way, it's crazy to think that you've only been here for like 24 hours, right? Feels much longer. We talked about the truth of God. Who is God? What does it mean that there is God? Uh, Monday a.m., we talked about the today. We talked about the truth of Scripture, right? If Scripture is authoritative, that means that it is reliable and it is accurate. It is a unified body leading to Jesus. It is a library of books, which is incredible that you have in your hand. And tonight, we're going to be taking a long journey through the life and teaching of Jesus. So remember yesterday, I talked to you about uh, skipping stones, right? And it skips across the water. Tonight, we're really going to be skipping stones. And we're going to be in certain stories in John chapters 4 through 6. So if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in, in, uh, starting off in John chapter 4. But let me ask you a question. So um, you guys know what a rumor is, right? Right? A rumor, okay? Gossip, these things. Why is a rumor bad? This is not rhetorical, which means you can answer back to me. Why is a rumor bad? What's that? It could be incorrect, right? Could be very hurtful. What was that? And it could be a lie, right? A rumor is unjust. Gossip is unjust because it could be all of those things. And it also does not allow the person to speak for themselves. It's an echo chamber. It's a room where that person doesn't exist, but things are being said about them. And imagine a trial where someone never gets to defend themselves. We call that injustice, right? America, our justice system is built on the right to a fair trial. But a rumor erases the person from that trial. And this is where Jesus finds himself constantly in our day and age. There are lots of opinions about Jesus, but rarely have they let him defend himself. Rarely has our world let Jesus speak for himself. The other day I was talking with one of my friends and he is not a Christian, he's not a believer. 
And, um, he, you know, he told me, he's like, look, that's great. I, I love what you do. And I was like, oh, well, what do you mean by that? You know, I'm a pastor. You don't believe what I believe. Why do you say? Well, he's, well he said, well, you know, I think Jesus teaches some really great stuff. And I'm, you know, at, as a pastor, I'm like, oh, yes, this is a great conversation. I'm excited. What do you mean by that? He's like, you know, like, love your neighbor. And I'm like, oh, that's a very important one. Jesus says it's very important, right? Love your neighbor. It's a good one. What else? What do you mean by that? He's like, yeah, just all the other stuff. And I was like, hey, no judgment, buddy. My friend's name is Luke. I said, Luke, have you read what Jesus says about himself? And he was like, well, not really. <laughs> and I was like, dude, you can say that you like what he says in certain ways, but you don't like this other stuff, but you've never actually read his words for yourself. And that's where a lot of people find themselves, right? Uh, when I started dating my wife, okay? We've been married for 11 years now. We love each other. It's all amazing. We're in a better place than we've ever been. I think we have a very healthy relationship, family, all this stuff, right? But when I first started learning things about her, um, I had to learn from her, right? I, had, I couldn't just ask around to other people. That's helpful. But I had to actually get to know her. What does she love? What is her interests? Is she the type of person I'd want to be with for the rest of my life? I had to let her speak for herself. I learned about her character from how she acted, but then how she treated others and how I watched her act. Her love for Jesus, was it genuine? I had to hear from her. I had to see it in her. The best place to learn about somebody is from that someone. And so that's what we're gonna do tonight. Learn from the teachings of Jesus about Jesus. So if we can trust this scripture, if it is authoritative, if it is remarkable, and Jesus does define who he is in it, then let's hear from him. So you have to keep in mind, remember, let me remind you, John wrote all these things in this book on purpose. He included every story on purpose because he wanted you to know something about the character, the life, the teaching, who Jesus is. And so, like he says in John 21, that there are just enough things in the life of Jesus to fill books in every home. But this book includes a certain amount of stories so that you would truly know who he is. Every story in this book purposely tells us who Jesus is. So Jesus, as you can see in this uh, next section, it, it feels to me like He's a very special person, right? He's, we've been walking through a lot of who he is. But it's, it's not true that we, don't, we can't learn from him. And in John 2, at this point, there are six disciples, okay? And they're learning from him. They're walking with him. They've trusted him. They're starting this lifelong experience, right? They're sort of the first in the line of those who call themselves Christians now today. And as we read the Gospels, they take some of these, like, you know, we may take these events for granted, but these were wholly revolutionary. Incredible things they're encountering every day, changing their worldview and ideas about everything around them. And in this chapter, John chapter 2 alone, John records three powerful revelations of Jesus. So like I said, I'm going to skip rocks, and I'll show you here. The first is his glory. Jesus attends a wedding in a place called Cana, and he hasn't performed a miracle up to this point. And uh, his mom comes to him, Mary, and is like, Jesus, 
we're out of the good stuff, that good good, that good wine. We don't have wine. Can you please give us some more wine? And Jesus, being who he is, you know, like, has your mom ever like, please take out the trash, please take out the trash, please take out the trash, right? He's like, okay, mom. Still man. And this is the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in, in Cana and the Galilee. And it manifested his glory. And these are the beginnings of the times that we see the actual disciples start saying they believe in him. They're like, dude, you change water to wine? That's not really a normal party trick. I think I'm gonna really like learn more about this guy. So then second, it's his passion, his zeal, his chutzpah, who he is. He is passionate. And you see that as we continue into John, in the, as Jesus, what we say, cleanses the temple. And the temple, it was one of the ancient wonders of the world. The priests had established this lucrative business where they fleeced poor people for their money. And what they did was they exchanged Jewish currency for Roman currency or wherever these people were from to come and sacrifice, give offerings. And they were selling at a marked up price to people who could barely afford to eat these doves, these things that they could sacrifice at the temple. And they were taking advantage of the poor and the lowly. And Jesus, being the ultimate justifier, the ultimate reconciler, saw injustice. And what he did, do you guys know what he did? He put together some whips, he made a rope, and he drove people out. Now, the scripture, just to be clear, it doesn't say that Jesus whipped people. It just says that he drove everyone out. And his zeal was for the house of the Lord, his father. His passion was for his father's house. So we see his passion. He didn't hurt anybody, but if we showed this powerful side of him that we sometimes forget. And the third is his knowledge. John 2 tells us, and it says in uh, 23 through 25, it just simply says that he knows exactly what is in the heart of man. Jesus, we start to get a revelation of his divinity in even the way that he can see into who people are. He can, in some supernatural way, feel thoughts, understand the motivations of the heart, why you make decisions, why you choose things over him, you know, stuff, people, all these things over him. And he sees the heart of man. And luckily, he sees our wickedness and still wants us. But at this point, Jesus is beginning to gain a reputation. He's getting to be popular for some good things and some not so good things. And people want to follow him. People are beginning to believe in him. But many are also beginning to have their own theories of who he is. Much like today. Like my friend, right? Like, hey, he's a good teacher. Like, right? He gives good principles for life. And so some people in our world, a lot of people would say, yeah, Jesus is a cool guy. Like, I don't really like this stuff about hell. I don't really like this stuff about judgment. I don't really like you know, his opinions of how I should live my life. But I do like that he says you should be kind. I do like that he says that you should love your neighbor. You know, sort of fill in the gap of the things that they would like to pick out that they love about him. Or maybe, you know, maybe he's like a, a prophet, an interesting guy, but I don't think he's the guy. Maybe he's pointing to something bigger, a bigger reality. Maybe he's just, you know, an interesting example of how you live your life, other-centered in some way. And this reputation is why in chapter three, a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus. 
And not only does he come to Jesus as a religious leader, but he comes to him at night. And if you guys remember what he tells him, he tells him, you must be born again. You have to be born again. And in John chapter three, verses one through five, if you wanna read it with me, here's the conversation. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. I had a friend growing up named Nicodemus, which I thought was hilarious because he always went by Nick. And you know, it's usually Nicholas. And then uh, 10 years after knowing him, I found out his full name was Nicodemus. <laughs> and then we all just called him Demas. So <laughs> tell your friends your full name or pay the price. Anyways, definitely not related, but I wanted you guys to know that. So he was a ruler of the Jews. He's a religious elite. He was up there in the government. He said, this man came to Jesus, Jesus, <laughs> I got Demas on the brain. <laughs> this man came to Jesus by night. So he wanted it to be a secret. He said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi meaning teacher, teacher of our way. We know that you are a teacher and come from God, right? There's something special about you, teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's admitting, look, you're doing some incredible stuff. I've seen some otherworldly things and nobody can do that unless God's with him. But, but, Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old, right? Nicodemus, he's very practical. Look, man, I've never known anybody who was born twice. Can't really crawl back up there. You get too big at some point, right? You can only be born once. Very practical. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is telling him in his own way, look, I know you're thinking in this very earthly way to get born from your mother, but I'm doing a new thing. I am giving you the spirit and I am gonna give you living waters as you'll see. And unless you are born of me, the provider of these things, you cannot be in the kingdom of God. And the point is, you cannot approach God on your own terms. You cannot let him know who you think he should be. He sets the terms for you being born again. Something has to happen. Something has to take place in the heart of man. To hear the good news, believe the truth of the work of Christ, and then to place your faith in Jesus Christ. These are the things. Jesus lays it out clearly in the Bible's most famous verse that we've seen all over sporting events for all of time, in John 3.16, right? It's most of the time, that's in this chapter. He says, and say it with me if you know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, right? That's the context for these verses. He's in this conversation about being born again. What does it mean to truly have new life in Christ and be ushered into the kingdom of God? And he says the motivation for God doing that is that he loves you and he wants to be with you no matter who you are. But it requires, remember what we talked about, it is a free gift that requires everything, a paradox to the hearts of those who don't know Jesus. And it's vital 
that we don't miss the two verses after this. Most people know 16, but they don't address 17 and 18. So if you look at 17 and 18, it says, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. It is also a warning. You are loved more than you can imagine. And there is an open table before you for the love of God to enter into your heart and to birth you anew and to give you access to this new thing called the kingdom. But beware, those who do not walk with Christ, those who are not in Christ are perishing. And God's judgment is still upon them because that sin cannot ever go away. It can only be covered up shortly. It does not go away without the price of the innocence. And so, then you move into chapter four. And if you guys, um, I work at a church called The Well, and it's, it's coined after this story, the woman at the well. And so I wanna sit down in this story just a little bit, if you'll allow me. It says that he, meaning Jesus, left Judea where he was and departed again for the region of Galilee in chapter four, verses th verse three, that's where we're at. And then in verse four, it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now listen, he did not have to pass through Samaria. There were other routes he could have taken. There are actually other roads, but he had to because he wanted to do something there. There are other routes, routes from point A to point B. And Jesus, honestly, he takes the more difficult route in going through Samaria. But not only the more difficult route, he takes the more controversial route. Um, if any of you are Harry Potter fans like me, um, there's, they call these people mudbloods who are part this and part, you know, uh, wizard and, you know, these things, right? And uh, it's an insult, and to the Jews, to be a Samaritan was an insult because they were part Jewish, but they were mixed with the conquerors. They had mixed ethnically over time. And they were extremely racially divided. Because of their hatred for the Samaritans, these people actually took incredibly long routes around their city and around their, their area, their county, so to say, just so that they could avoid this place. And Jesus chose the route through Samaria in order to reach the people in that region. And as the savior of the world, he seeks out the despised. He does not let these dividing walls that we normally put in front of us, between us, the things that you think divides you from the people across this way, that way, grade level, ethnicity, socioeconomics, part of the country, part of the world. He says, no, none of that stuff divides us. In Christ, we can all be the same. We can all be in Christ. We can honor all these things, but this is the true one. He seeks out the despised, the outcast, those who don't feel they have a place. And that's what we see here in John chapter four. Jump over to verse seven. And it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. 
And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So this woman knows you are breaking down giant cultural barriers. You are crossing racial divides to talk to me. You shouldn't be talking to me. Why are you doing this? And he just totally bypasses it and just says, give me a drink. You wouldn't have said that. You would have asked me and he would have given you living water. He's like, you don't even know who you're talking to right now. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. She, she, doesn't even, she still doesn't understand, right? He's saying, I wanna give you life eternal. I wanna give you something different than you think you need. And she's like, well, where's your bucket, dude? I don't see any bucket. Because the well's deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. He drank from it himself, and, and as did his sons and their livestock. And Jesus said to him, uh, just said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. So he's like, look, I know you still think I'm talking about some magical water. I'm not. I'm not talking about this water. Everyone who drinks this water is gonna have that physical sensation of thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up, filling up to the brim to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw this water again. Right, she's still having trouble grasping the enormity of what Jesus is offering her, eternal life in the well, the, the well digger, the life giver, the water giver, the living water giver, living water. I mean, somebody would have heard that term and known that that often just meant running water, water that was clean, that you could drink from that was natural. But that's not what he was talking about. She's still thinking physical. And honestly, this woman, the backstory on her is crazy because she's just out here in the middle of the day when most people should not be at the well. This is a humiliating thing for her to be here in the middle of the day. And she's thinking, man, I don't have to come out here in the middle of the day. It's so humiliating to admit who I am. And you're gonna find out soon here because he reveals it. And Jesus makes two claims as he responds to her. If she knew who he was, she would know he is the fulfillment of everything she's looking for. He says, if you truly knew me, you would know that I'm exactly what you've been looking for even without knowing it. And then two, he proclaims himself to be the source of that living water. She believes it to be like a physical refreshment, but Jesus is talking about something so much greater. And the Jewish people hearing this, reading this, understanding this, would have, it would have hearkened to mind in places like in Jeremiah, where God calls himself the fountain of living water the one who provides eternal life, the provider of all things good. Jesus is proclaiming that in only himself, the fullness of life and meaning and hope can be found. I love this quote. It says that all desires, wants, cares, pursuits of the world will forever fall short, but in himself, you no longer have to search for purpose and meaning and hope for you have securely found it in him. 
Jesus is the only one who satisfies. You think you need this, he will give you this, and the thing that you never even knew you needed, your soul will be satisfied. The deepest parts of you that hunger will be satisfied. And then things in their interaction get very real, very quick. And Jesus, in verses 16 through 19, says this. Jesus said to her, uh, go call your husband to come here. This is a setup. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right saying I have no husband. Remember, he sees the hearts of man. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have had said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You know things that maybe only God can tell you. You see, Jesus is so gracious in that he meets her right where she's at. She is despised by her community, there in the middle of the day when she shouldn't be there, desiring for the things that she can't give herself. But he doesn't just leave her there. He actually asks her for something. He lets her know, look, you're safe in this place. I'm talking to you at risk of my own reputation amongst the religious elite and my people. I'm gonna break down all these barriers, even though these people are gonna hate me for it. Because you're worth it. My grace is big enough for you, the Samaritan woman in humiliation at the well at the middle of the day. But he does not dismiss her sin. He says, look, I know all the relationships you've been in, the failed marriages you've had, the tragedy you've experienced. And I know that even the person you're with right now is not your husband. And so he offers her grace and truth in the fullest forms. Have any of you ever had surgery before? Right, so I, I had a shoulder issue and I had to have surgery on it. In the, if you've had surgery on a joint specifically, you have to do like physical therapy and it's terrible. It makes you feel like a child because you're like, I can't move this thing. I can't lift this thing. And uh, it's really hard work. It's not easy. And it's sometimes humiliating. But it's good. And it's what you need. Because when you move that thing, when you do that hard thing, when you remove that impingement that's been uh, getting in the way of growth, it is a difficult, hard process. And what Jesus is doing here is performing careful surgery and revealing the heart of this woman and loving her kindly, but revealing the things that need to painfully change. Grace and truth in fullness. She says that he's a prophet, right? She ends this thing being like, dang boy, you're amazing. Like, you know all this stuff about me. What am I gonna do? You're a prophet. And she's close, but not quite. And then in verse 25 and 26, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah, the Christ, the rescuer is coming. You know, there's enough of this Jewish background in her as a Samaritan to know there is a Messiah. He was called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all the things. And Jesus said to her, listen to this. 
First time he's gonna say this in this book. I who speak to you am he. He says, I am the Messiah. We're learning from him who he is. I am the Messiah. It's first mention of it. The first time this savior, the first time this Messiah reveals himself, this Christ, is to an unsuspecting, shamed woman in her community. What an incredible revelation. What an incredible savior who would not try and pick a king, who would not go to the top of the food chain, but would say, look, you who are lowly, you who feel despised, outcast, you who don't feel like you fit, I reveal myself to you. He has a heart for everyone. Scripture says that he will leave the 99 to, to find the one. That's his character. That's who he is. And Jesus speaks hope, saying, I'm the one that has been spoken of since the beginning. I'm the anointed one of God sent to restore creation. I'm the one who has come to bring living water and fullness of life. And here's her response in 39. It says, many believe because the word of the woman who told them. And then however, 41 and 42, and many more believed because of his word, Jesus's word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. You see these people heard from someone, right? Maybe heard from her, maybe like you're hearing from me. And what happened was they then heard it from him. They said, it's not enough. I want to know what he says he is. And then they learned, as they digested his words, they grew to believe he was the one they'd been waiting for based on his own words. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do. Don't take it from me. Take it from him. Don't take it from your Bible teacher. Don't take it from your parents. Don't take it from your mentor, your friends. Don't just inherit your belief. I'm, let me encourage you to search the scriptures, ask who Jesus says he is, and take it from him, as these people did. And his testimony and teaching leaves only one possibility. We go on to John 5 in the pools of Bethesda. And uh, this, is a pl this is a place where they believed that there was holy waters that were being stirred up to heal people. In John 5, uh, you know, there's a, uh, it says that there's a multitude of invalids who laid by the pool waiting for the waters to be stirred up. And they, they had lots of different legends and understandings because the waters would go in and out. They would come up and down. I mean, I don't know. We don't really exactly know why. Um, they just believe, hey, when this thing's stirred up, we need to get there. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. He was disabled severely. And I mean, it could have been like somebody was flushing their toilet and it just went down for a little bit, right? We don't know, but he believed. And when Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to them, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another, another steps down before me. People are cutting me in line. And Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. It's important because the religious folk did not like it when you did things like healing or working in their mind on the Sabbath. Jesus simply speaks to him, honoring his belief, and says, you're healed. 
Take up your mat where you've been laying for almost 40 years and get up, walk away. He has that power. And so in verse 10 of chapter five, it says, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. They're like, not on our watch. You can't have your entire life changed and body healed on our watch. You can't do that on the Sabbath. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Jesus didn't even introduce himself. He just healed him and then he knew these dudes were gonna really mad at him and he just withdrew. It wasn't his time yet. And so notice the varying options. He just calls him a man. Nicodemus, he's a good teacher. The woman at the well calls him a prophet. The man healed by the pools calls him a man. It's a lot of different options, right? Just like the world around us. We don't know who he is, what he does, but he's one of these things, we think. Well then, who is he really? And thankfully, he tells us. He gives us a picture of who he is in these chapters. You see, um, the woman at the well, as Jesus had said, I am he, right? He tells us, I am he who speaks to you. As the encounter at the pool ends in verse 16 on, on John 5, it says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing the things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. <laughs> Seems extreme, but okay. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, and here it is, guys. Here's why they were so mad. But he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Making himself equal with God. This was the outrage. This is why he was killed. He said, my father, and in this statement, Jesus is making claim about himself. He and the father are one. They are equal, one and the same. Look at how angry this makes the religious leaders. And then in John chapter six, we have the famous feeding of the 5,000, right? Um, we, like I told you yesterday, or this morning, I can't remember, you know, it's all blurring together. Uh, sometimes me and my son, we have to be very creative with a four-year-old teaching Bible lessons. And so what we do is we cut corners and we do crafts and we do all these things. It's like, hey, you know, how, did, how do you understand this? And we just did the Feeding the 5,000 last week. And what we did is we took a paper and we said, hey, I want you to cut off a corner. And what he did is every time he cut off a corner, it created two corners. And so every time he started cutting more and more corners, and we started with four corners and we ended with hundreds of corners. I said, look, look what Jesus did with these loaves and fishes that this little boy brought to him. You know, these small things, as he gave them and as more people took in this crowd, all this food, all these people who are learning about who Jesus is, the food multiplied and multiplied and grew and grew like the corners on my son's page before he just completely obliterated it. And John makes this bold statement in John chapter six, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus makes this bold statement. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. 
Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, do you take offense at this? So through the whole chapter six of John, Jesus ends with that, that question. What are you gonna do with it? Do you take offense to this? Because he said, I'm the bread of life earlier on. And what he does through this whole chapter is he's dismantling these religious views of who God is in these people around him. He's dismantling people's political allegiances in the people around him. And then he's feeding people and disrupting economics and all these things, right? These people should probably buy these things, but he's just feeding them. And he's throwing a wrench in every system in these people's lives. And, he, and then he says he's just the bread of life. You should eat his flesh. You should do all these things, drink his... They're like, what are you talking about? Verses 66 and 69, through 69 of chapter 6, says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, right? Their response was, this is too much for us. It's not just the saying about the blood and the body and the bread. It's that you're taking apart our whole lives. We can't just have you as a side, you know, handbag. You're not an accessory to our lives. You're requiring everything of us. And so Jesus turns to his 12 and says, do you want to go away as well? And look, and look, please look at Simon, or listen to Simon Peter's response. Listen to what Peter says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He says, what else can we do? We may not understand this new thing you're doing, but we don't have anything else. This is incredible. We've never seen anything like this and we don't know how to digest it. We don't know what to do with it yet, but we know this is it. You are it. In John 7, Jesus then goes on to talk about himself being that living water. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 38 say, on the last day of the feast, it was the feast of Sukkot, it celebrates the gathering of the harvest and commemorates how God miraculously provided it for his people and delivering them from Egypt. He says, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures had said, out of his heart will, will flow living waters. Rivers of living waters will flow from the hearts of those who believe in Jesus. He is the bread of life, he is living water, food and water, the source of life itself. Who here um, likes food? You guys like food, right? <laughs> A general question. <laughs> Good, I like food. And these people in John 6, they're so focused on physical food because Jesus had just fed them. He provided for their physical needs. That was what manna was in the wilderness. Maybe he's the new Moses. Maybe he's a prophet. In addition, John tells us that this was the time of that Passover. They're like, oh, well, maybe he's like delivering us again from these Roman people, just like Moses did from the Egyptians. Hey. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, I'm just going to give you these things. He says, I am it. You think you need food to survive. Maybe your body does but your soul is dead without me. I am the provider of life for your soul. I am it. As you partake, as you love me, as you, as you get into my kingdom, that is what true life is. 
And I, I get it. I love food too. I mean, it's my natural go-to for most things, good and bad. I've been on a weight loss journey for probably three years. Lost quite a bit of weight. Learning to be healthier, be better to myself, you know, all these things. I love food. I have a bad relationship with food. Mending, on the mend. But Jesus is not communicating about physical appetite. It is a soul hunger. A hunger in the soul of every person that only Jesus can satisfy. A hunger and a desire. Who am I? What am I here for? These are big questions. What is your purpose? What is the meaning of life? What happens after this life? These are things you have to wrestle with. And it's a God-sized hunger intentionally placed by God inside of each one of us in order to push us towards himself. At the end of each of these encounters, his listeners have to decide for themselves whether or not Jesus is the answer. Was it all a coincidence? Could it be explained away? Or is Jesus exactly who he says he is? It requires a personal responsibility. And let me ask you guys. We've talked about God. We've talked about scripture. And now this is the meat. Who do you say he is? And like the videos have said, it is the most important answer. And it will shape your whole of existence. Who do you say that he is? Is he a teacher, a prophet, a man? Is he the bread of life or living water? What do you say? Let me pray. God, um, I thank you for the opportunity to wrestle with big questions, hard and difficult things. But Lord, what better time? What better time to answer for ourselves? Who are you? What do you require of us? Are you wholly unique? Can you satisfy my desires? Can you fulfill the things that I think I need? And can you give me abundant life? Are you, God, going to create a, a river of living water in the hearts of those who believe in you? And so I ask that these students continually will have the courage to wrestle, will not only just have the desire but the courage to ask big questions, to do it in community with people who love them. We pray this in Jesus' name.